Thank you, Colin. You said earlier today is our last in the series on the Reformation, the last of the five solas. I never quite know what the plural is of a solar. Some people say it's a soli, others say it's a solus, and other people say soluses. I don't know. But anyway, it's the last one. Um, okay, let's see if that one's working. Yeah, there we are. So Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door about 500 years ago, as I said, but... Uh, it wasn't until about 100 years ago that these were summarised as three principles of Reformation uh, that became known as the solas or the alones. Scripture alone, faith alone, and grace alone. And then it was only about 50 years or so ago that two more were added. Christ alone and to the glory of God alone. So literally it's a handful of solas, one for each finger and the thumb of one hand. Easy to remember. That sums up our faith. Five solas, and yet the word solar means alone. Solitary. But there's five of them. So how can I be alone? As I was thinking about that, I was thinking about, it's a funny thing, isn't it, language? Why do we have a pair of trousers? Or a pair of underpants, or if I'm allowed to say a pair of knickers? We have a pair, but there's only one of them. Maybe it's because you've got two legs, but you don't wear a pair of shirts, do you? And we've got two arms. Funny thing, isn't it, language? But I'm not going to worry myself too much about (laughs) clothing. I think mines must be going elsewhere. (laughs) Not going to worry too much about clothing. Um, But we have five alone. And of course, they can all stand on their own, can't they? They can all stand on their own right or in their own right. But together, they form the basis of our faith. When we first started to uh, think about this series as elders, I had to admit I didn't actually know what a solar was. I didn't even know what the five solars were. I never heard of them. Perhaps I shouldn't admit that standing here. But I managed to come to faith without knowing even one of the solars. That was about 40 years ago. But hopefully since then, even without knowing them, I've been living according to them through the teaching and wisdom of those that are around us. Scripture alone grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and all to the glory of God alone. Call them what we will, but more importantly, let's make sure that we live by them and live our lives by them. We have scripture over tradition. It's from God alone. It's inspired. It leads to God alone. It's our reference point. We have grace, not merit. It flows from God and comes only through the work and love of God. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And faith, rather than works, is a gift that God gives and that unites us to God. And then through Christ alone, he is from God. He's God. He points to God. And we come to God through him alone. And that then brings us to the last of the five, to the glory of God alone. Although actually, when you think about it, all of the solas, they all exalt and glorify God. Scripture alone points us to God. Our salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, and through faith alone. We can't add to it. Therefore, all the glory goes back to God and not to us. It comes from him, it's through him, and it's to him. One of the problems mankind has had right from the beginning is seeking glory for ourselves. 
God made us, he designed us to be glory reflectors, but we so often want to be the glory makers. In Romans 3, Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin cuts us off from God. It makes us want to focus more on ourselves. Maybe it's Adam and Eve in the garden when the serpent said, if you eat the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Or building the Tower of Babel, where man effectively said, we'll use our own intelligence, our technology, our own strength to build a tower that's going to reach up to the heavens so that we'll make a name for ourselves. We have that tendency, don't we, to be self-reliant, to make a name for ourselves and to seek the glory for ourselves. But in the long run, it doesn't work. We usually just look silly. I heard a story a little while back of a newly appointed military officer taking command of a large military base. He arrives, and as he would, he surveys his new base, his area of command. He reflects on the position he's been appointed to, commander of everything before him. He makes his way to his new office, large and impressive, furnished for such a position to reflect his authority. A moment later, a private knocks on the door. The officer wants to look important. He wants to have that respect and glory that's due to a new officer, the commander of the base. As he calls the private in, he picks up the phone and he pretends to have a conversation with an important person. Yes, sir. Yes, General Smith. No, no relation to Ian. I'll get on it, sir. Yes, you can count on me, sir. He hangs up the phone, turns to the private. He asks him sharply, OK, private, what do you want? The private is hesitant. Spit it out, man, he says. Well, sir, I'm here to connect the phone. (laughs) Trying to take the glory for ourselves doesn't work. Let's turn to scripture, as that's the, uh, the word of God alone, and everything we teach, anything we believe we hear from God, must be measured against it. I've just got three short passages, the first two from Psalms. Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. And in Psalm 24, and the first two verses. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Then our main passage is from Romans, Romans 11, verse 33. I know it's a little bit cramped on the slide there, but I want to get it all on one. You know, they didn't have verses and chapters and all the rest of it, so I'm going to flow through from 11 straight into 12. It says, Over depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of God? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. What we need to be completely clear is that soli dio gloria, which I think is how you say it, or glory to God alone, which is much easier for me, it's about God's glory. It's not about us giving him glory. Perhaps that sounds like a bit of a fine distinction, but it's important because if we focus on living to the glory of God, as we say, then we're in danger of focusing on ourselves rather than on God. If we're not careful we can become centred on ourselves about what we can do for God instead of purely honouring God. God has all the glory. We can't add anything to him because all the glory is already his. Now, that doesn't mean that, that we don't do things to glorify God, of course. Just that our focus is to be on him and not on what we're doing. Let me tell you about a man who couldn't keep down a job. He lived about 300 years ago. He was a church organist and a composer. And while he was a great organist, the pieces he composed himself were often thought to be a bit too showy to be played in church. And so eventually, no matter what church he was in, he would grumble, or they would grumble and then he'd move on. He couldn't keep down a job. He'd soon be forgotten by the churches, but he wasn't forgotten by history because he was Johann Sebastian Bach. Once, when a pastor was relaying the concerns of the congregation, Bach responded by saying, the main purpose of my music is to glorify God. Some people do this with music that's simple. I haven't chosen to use a simple style, but my music comes from my heart as a humble offering to God. This honours God no matter what music style I use. He said, the main purpose of my music is to glorify God. Can we say that about everything that we do? When Bach began to compose a piece of music, he would write Yezu, Yuva, or JJ at the beginning, meaning Jesus help me. And when he finished, he would write Soli Deo Gloria, or SDG for sure, for the glory of God alone. It may not show up very well there, but... You can see where he's written on there. We should be living our hearts, living our lives to glorify God. It's a great challenge, isn't it? To live so that nothing is about me or about us, but everything's about God. But if we grasp the other four solas, scripture alone, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, they all point to the fact that our salvation and therefore all of our life is for the glory of God alone. What Martin Luther and the Reformers saw was the glorification of the church and the Pope and self. The teaching and tradition, they weren't helping to point people towards God. They were taking the glory for themselves. Romans 11.36 again. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We can't compose music like Bach, at least I can't. I don't think many of us can. So how do we give God the glory? Well, in this passage it says that all things are from him, through him, for him. 
Let's take a few minutes looking at each one of those. Because firstly, we glorify God when we acknowledge that all things are from him. God is firstly the creator. Right at the beginning of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Some are going to disagree with that. They argue with the Big Bang Theory. They talk about millions of years, even billions, numbers that I really can't get my head around. They talk about the world suddenly starting out out of nothing about four and a half billion years ago. And that out of nothing, we eventually evolved from what they call a single-cell protoplasm to what we are today. But for me, the key is in the word theory, Big Bang Theory. And a theory, according to the dictionary, is a speculative or conjectural view or idea. Psalm 38 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I so much prefer the understanding of a psalmist who writes in the word of God, a part of scripture alone. Do I really want to come from a single cell protoplasm that evolved? Or from a father who loves me, who created me, who put me together and loved me so much that even before we rebelled, he was planning a way back for us to be reconciled to him through Christ on the cross. And that's something, of course, we celebrate shortly in taking communion together. So for me, I choose Genesis and the many other scriptures that point to our creator God. In the 18th century, there was an atheist called Voltaire and he famously said, the world embarrasses me that I cannot dream that the watch exists and has no watchmaker. Although he was a declared atheist, he struggled to accept a world of such order, even in the chaos today. He struggled to see a world that doesn't have an overall watchmaker and that watchmaker, of course, being God. Creation is part of that intelligent design of God. It didn't just happen. And each of us are here, a part of the ongoing story of creation. Because God made us to have a relationship with him. And it's only in that relationship that we really find our true identity and our complete being. Creation didn't just happen. It happened at the word of God. And at the beginning of John's Gospel, we read... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And if we read on a bit more from there, there, we know that the Word is Jesus. And so again we return to one of those solas in Christ alone. It's good, isn't it, to read our Bibles every day. It's the right thing to do. It strengthens us, teaches us. But there's a danger that we read just a few verses in isolation. And in our rush, we miss that big picture. Because there's reminders right right throughout God's word about his creation, right through the scripture. Things that bring us back to God, the God who made everything. And the God in whom we have our hope and salvation. When we give God the glory, we celebrate the words of 1 Corinthians 8.6, where it says, We know that there is only one God, the Father, who created everything, and we live for him 
And there's only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made everything and through whom we've been given life. So glory to God alone, through Christ alone. And then we glorify God when we acknowledge that all things are through him. God didn't just create the world and turn his back on it. You know, when you watch a nature programme on TV, we're reminded of how fragile our world is, and yet also how incredible it is. I only saw a bit of it the other day, the Blue Planet 2 that was on BBC. Incredible pictures of life in the oceans, things that we don't normally see and most of us don't know. I'd never heard of a copy dye fish, which they described as a fish that only its mother could love. (laughs) But then as they went on to explain it, It may not be that easy to know who your mum is because females can change into males and then they fight to become the new dominant male in the colony. You know, I'm sure God had a bit of a laugh when he made that fish. (laughs) He knew it was going to blow our minds trying to understand it. I can imagine God saying with a smile on his face, why not? We also know that if the earth was much further from the sun then it would be too cold to support life, much closer, and it would be too hot. Tilt at even a degree on its axis, and life on Earth would be disrupted, and yet it continues to be where it's supposed to be and turn as it's supposed to turn. And when things aren't quite as they should be, we need to remind ourselves that God is still on the throne, that he's there and he does care. You know, Jesus reminds us in Matthew 10, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. When my children, Paul and Ruth, were younger, they liked that verse particularly. It was one of their favourite verses. Because they grew up with four cousins who were generally bigger than they were. And their surname was Sparrow. So don't be afraid, you're worth more than many sparrows. It's one of their favourite verses. (laughs) But sometimes people, they point to the pain and the problems of the world, asking where God is. What's he doing about it? And if we're honest, we ask some of those questions too. Perhaps they start with, if God is great, then how come? How come there are hungry children? How come there's cancer or dementia? How come there's poverty? How come marriage vows are broken? And there are a load more how-comes. It's easier to blame God, isn't it, than to look into ourselves. But blaming him takes the glory away from him. All these things are far less to do with God and much more to do with us and the choices that mankind has made. I'm told that the world can produce enough food to feed every man, woman and child. That we don't have a supply problem but a distribution problem. And what if we didn't have to spend billions and billions of pounds or dollars on defence? Couldn't the money and the genius behind finding better ways to kill people actually be used to find better ways to heal people? And God's plan wasn't that marriages would fail. His plan was that marriages would thrive. And when they don't, isn't it because of one or both partners? As much as God wants the best for the world that he, he created, 
he wouldn't take away our free will. Although men and women have generally used their free will to turn away from God, what would the world look like without the goodness of God and his people in it? Without the difference that we can make to the people that we meet and work with? God hasn't abandoned his world. All things are held together through him and he's patient, he wants all to turn to him. For from him and through him and for him all things are made. We're not moving on there. For some reason we've lost the PowerPoint on here. But we glorify God when we acknowledge that all things are for him. We've already said that all things are from him. All things are through him, but all things are for him. We are new creations. The old has gone, the new has come. And with that new life comes a responsibility of new behaviour. When our lives reflect Christ and his teaching, it means we're living for the glory of God. But it also means that when someone who professes to be a Christian lives a life that's at odds with what Christ taught, then it takes the glory away from God. It doesn't point others to God, but takes it away. We've probably all heard those words at some point, those words that say they call themselves a Christian. Hard words to hear. But sometimes the world holds us to higher standards than we do ourselves. Everything's intended for God's glory, and Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, Mark wrote his music for the glory of God, but what does it mean for us? Most of us are never going to compose like Park or write like Luther. Peter wrote in his first letter, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. So in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. What you have, God gave you. And all that he asks is that you do what you do for him and with the strength and energy that he gives. So whether you teach or sell or protect or heal or repair or shop or clean or parent or whatever it is, then begin the daylight bark when he started his composing. Jesus help me. And then go about your day in such a way that at the end of the day, you'll have no problem signing your day. Glory to God alone. And that doesn't mean false humility. I have to be careful with this next thought, as it might come back and hit me, but have you ever complimented someone for a sermon or a song or anything else they've done, either inside or outside the church, and they shrugged it off by saying, oh, it was just God speaking or singing or working or doing through me? I'm not sure that's what God actually expects. Perhaps it's better just to do your best, to say thank you, to smile, and leave the rest with God. Put it like this. If I were to respond to someone and say, oh, it's just speaking through me, God, that was God just speaking through me, they might well be advised to say, well, really? I've heard him do better. <laughs> As I was uh, preparing for this morning, I wondered if some might actually ask why God wants us to praise him, exalt him, glorify him, honour him, worship him, whether or not perhaps he's got a bit of an ego. Well, to help to answer that, 
How do you feel when someone gives you great praise? I know I usually feel a bit awkward. And I think that's because I know all about myself, even the darker side of me. And I know I'm not worthy of that praise. I also know there are others who deserve to be praised more than I do. They've done more, lived better, sacrificed more, been more faithful than I could ever hope to be. God doesn't have those problems. He doesn't have a dark side. He's perfect. What he says, he does. He's never hypocritical. There's no one better than him. He's more caring, more holy. No one is like him. No one is his equal. He's the best in every sense. But there's also a very, another very important reason why God wants us to praise him. He knows that we become like the object of our praise. When I praise his goodness, I recognise that I want to be a better person. When we praise his loving kindness, we recognise we want to be more loving and kinder to those around us. And when we praise his purity and holiness, we recognise we want to be more like him. God knows that we tend to become more like the gods we worship, for good or for evil. And so tomorrow, whatever we're doing, we should have that goal of not just living, but living to the glory of God. God expects that when people talk about our lives and the way we live, that it's going to give the glory back to him. He expects that when people speak of our attitude and our words, that our attitudes and words will give the glory back to him. And he expects that when people see how we trust him in the face of whatever circumstance life gives us, that our trust will give glory back to him. So as we live according to scripture alone, not swayed by culture or tradition, do we live in the strength of Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone? I just put together two of the verses that we've been using. It says, so whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. For everything comes from him, exists by his power, and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. I think we've moved straight into communion as time is moving on quite quickly. We often think, don't we, of communion as an act of remembrance because it says in 1 Corinthians 11, it says this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Taking communion is a reminder that whatever day of the week and whatever situation we find ourselves, Christ died for us, for you, for me. And it's good to remind ourselves of that often as it also reminds us of our security in Christ and helps us to do away with any doubt and uncertainty. God loves us and what he achieved on the cross stands forever. But there's also a reminder about the future in communion because the next verse says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Not forever, but until he comes. So we don't just look back in communion, but we remind ourselves that he's coming again. And when he does, 
we won't take communion again because we'll eat and drink with him.